Hello and welcome to Polity Matters. My name is Ben Ratliff and I'm joined as always by Jared Nelson and Scott Edberg. And you are here for episode four of Before the Book. Uh, remember this series we just started not too many episodes ago is basically a book club. We're here to discuss material that we've been reading and try to present it to you, our listeners, whether you've been reading along or not. So we want to try to give you a sense of this book by Thomas Witherow, The Apostolic Church, which is it? And to that end, we've decided to add some uh, different folks into the discussion from week to week. And this week, we're happy to welcome Josh Torrey with us. Josh, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, if, if you have an interest in polity, uh, where it came from, how you're connected to the church. Tell us about your family. Uh, welcome. We're glad to have you. Thank you. Uh, we'll start with the family thing. I uh, married my wife, for Elena, for 17 years. I got five kids. We have been members of the PCA for about 10 years now at Redeemer Austin. Um, I have been a ruling elder there for four years. Um, my love for polity, which I do have, uh, I think stems from actually being raised uh, Southern Baptist and being raised Southern Baptist and being in an environment where, you know, the average congregational member is helping run the church in every single way. I've always been interested in polity. And now I can take some of those things that I've learned and, you know, I, I apply them to uh, the BCO and Presbyterianism. I, I live to find typographical errors in the BCO on a Saturday <laughs> morning. Nothing, nothing makes my week better than finding a typo in the BCO while I'm having my morning coffee on a Saturday. Oh, yeah, that's me. Well, before we jump into the material, I was told that Jared needed some time uh, to, I don't know, take over or cancel the show or <laughs> sing a song. I don't know what's about to happen. Well, as we occasionally do, um, I have a game for us, and that way that can get us uh, started into our our time <clears throat> and uh, see what you guys know about a certain subject. And so... Uh, my game that I came up this week is Guess the Nate Park Denomination mm. by its Polity Oddity. So this is mostly which one of these things is not like the other as I uh, present these to you. So I've been doing a little bit of research into Nate Park denominations, um, mostly into polity. Some of it might be about size, things like that. So uh, don't don't open up your Wikipedia or anything like that when you, uh, when you answer these questions. But I want to get an answer from all of you. I'm going to give you probably about four or five choices since there's a ton of different denominations in uh, NAPARC. And I just want you to hold up your, your fingers for the number that you're going to guess uh, for what it is. And then you can give me uh, some sort of a justification for why you think uh, here, I'll make the, uh, the sample one uh, somewhat easy. It'll be something like this, which NAPARC denomination has their standards in English, uh, the Korean American Presbyterian church, the Korean Presbyterian church in America, Kosin, the Reformed Church of Quebec, or the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So one, two, three, or four. Okay, well, that one's obvious. Okay, it's obviously uh, Quebec. No. Um, so uh, first question uh, we're going to go with is, um, which NAPARC denomination has in their constitution the usual confession of faith, catechisms, uh, book of church order elements, but also a testimony that gives the denominations interpretation, commentary, and even in a few places, their disagreements with the confession of faith. 
is that number one, the Reformed Church of Quebec, number two, the ARP, number three, the URCNA, United Reformed Churches of North America, or the RPCNA, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. So one, two, three, or four, go ahead up and, and hold up your hand for the one that you're going to guess. So Ben and Josh, you both guessed number one, the Reformed Church of Quebec. Do you have any reasoning for that? Canadians. Canadians, yeah. Yeah, none at all. No reasoning. <laughs> and um, Scott, you guessed four, the RPCNA. You want to give us a reason for that? Yeah, they just seem odd enough to have that much length in their constitutional understanding of their documents. And so I would I would guess that they would take time out of their history in order to actually discuss what they actually believe about the con- their confession. All right. And the correct answer is the RPCNA. So, Scott, you have one point. Josh and Ben, you have zero points. Um, all right, next one. See if you can do a little bit better on this one. Which NAPARC denomination explicitly does not have women deacons? Explicitly does not have women deacons. Is it the uh, Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, the RPCNA, the ARP, Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, uh, the Reformed Church in the United States, that's the old German Reformed Church, or the Reformed Church of Quebec? So that's one, two, three, or four. Do you know which one you're going to guess? There's All nothing right. like there's nothing like holding up our hands on an audio podcast to tell everybody <laughs> what we voted but, for. But then I can tell them that, uh, say. again, Ben and Josh, you were voting for number four. Uh, why is that? You want to give us a reasoning? I have no idea. Same as last time. Yeah. This is Same all French time? to me. I, I don't all know. French to you. Okay. Scott, you voted for which one? I voted for the Germans. The Germans. Any reasoning? Yeah. Yeah, because the German, this is a, a reaction against the German li- uh, liberalism of the 20th century. And so they wanted to ensure their conservatism by establishing a male only uh, office. And Scott is correct. <laughs> I'm pretty sure on the Reformed Church of Quebec, it explicitly says no on minister and elder. It doesn't say anything on deacon. So I'm, I'm guessing at that one. But Reformed Church. Uh, Scott, have you States. had a Red Bull this morning? What's going on, man? <laughs> He's quite energetic. You just have to you have to be confidently say your answer. And then when you're right, everybody just assumes that's why they have it. Yes. <laughs> All right. Um, this one might be might be easier. I don't know. I, this is just numbers. Uh, which NAPARC denomination after the PCA has the most congregations? So not the PCA. Which one is number two? All right. Is it number one, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church? Number two, the Korean American Presbyterian Church? Number three, the URCNA, United Reformed Church, or the ARP, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. What was the third one? Uh, The URC, United Reformed Church. All right. That was the Dutch break off of the CRC. So, Mm -hmm. all right. You guys ready? You can vote in one, two, three, vote. All right. So now we have, again, agreement between Ben and Joshua. (laughs) This is not working out well. Yeah, well. um, Why do you say URC? Because Josh said URC. Okay, that's a good reason. Josh, why did you say URC? Uh, I, OPC seemed too obviously the 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 way to go, so I went with with something else. Okay, Scott, what did you say? The ARP because it's the second largest NAPARC denomination. Oh, okay, but you would be wrong because it's actually the Korean American Presbyterian Church. Uh, you guys were all wrong on that. If you could read Korean, then you would have known that. So is the URC a part of NAPARC? Oh, the URC. Yeah. Uh, yeah okay. According okay, to the, sure. 
According to Wikipedia. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, sorry. All right. How about how about on the other end? Which name park denomination has the fewest congregations? Is it number one? And these might be observers. I don't know. Heritage Reform Congregations. I think that's Speakies. Um, oh. Number two, the Kosen Korean Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, number three, the Reformed Church of Quebec. Or number four, the Presbyterian Reformed Church. I've guessed the French three times already. I'm, I'm going to go with them again and just see, see if it lands. Okay. Scott's going with number one, the Heritage Reformed Church. And Ben and Josh again are riding together on the Reformed Church of Quebec. Uh, I'll, I'll just say this time. Third time is a charm. It is the Reformed Church of Quebec. Finally. At least the time of reporting was five congregations. So Wow. Congregations. Uh, yeah. It's because um, nobody knows what they're saying. They can't understand them. All right. When did, when did Scott turn into Ray Charles over there? <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's good. What's this is an audio-only podcast. What's um, going what is going on with the sunglasses? Indoors, dude. Come on. All right. And um, maybe I'll just do one more, and it'll be which Nate Park denomination? Which Nate Park denomination does not call their highest court a synod? That's actually polity related. Uh, is it the ARP, the RPCNA, the URCNA, or the OPC? Just expect you to know all of those acronyms. Oh, Ben and Josh are disagreeing this time. Mm. And um, so, Josh, why did you say the RPCNA? That's so wrong, man. <laughs> it was I because I have no I I you have no. no idea no idea <laughs> okay. And then uh, Ben and Scott, you guys both said OPC. Why did you pick the right answer? Because they're Presbyterians. <laughs> they're, they're, there are four Presbyterians art. <laughs> no, they're not. No, they're not Presbyterian enough to have assemblies. But the fun fact, I think that the RPCNA and the OPC often like have joint worship services during their synods and assemblies. Well, That's probably the a- ARP and the RPCNA have. Yeah. Um, yes, it is the OPC. All right, so uh, the points don't really matter. So, but I think Scott won. So. Um, there you go. Now you need to know a little bit more about our cousins in the uh, in the other Nate Park denominations, and obviously, there's a lot of education to be done on that. Obviously, Maybe we should have more uh, some more games like this. I can do these games. What do you mean by games like this? Oh, I don't know that that whole game that you had like at the beginning of this, where we had to guess the chapter on the BCO. That that knocked a year off my life. <laughs> that was terrible. That was Shit. one of the most fun I things I've ever done. One. That was a, that was a good one. That was early, early, early in in the, mm-hmm. the show. Man, it scarred me. We've aged a lot since then. All right. Well, uh, as y'all recall, we're reading through Thomas Witherow's The Apostolic Church. In the first chapter, the question was posed: Which of the three forms of church government prevalent throughout the world is it the duty of a Christian to select and to support? And in order to answer this, Witherow observes the apostolic church in the pages of Scripture. Just uh, just as the moral law is laid out in principles, Witherow argues and shows us that the polity of the church is not given in detailed instructions, but is given in principles that are to be applied. And so we've looked at two of these principles already. The office bearers in the apostolic church are chosen by the people. And number two, the offices of bishop and elder are identical. And today, Witherow is proposing that in each church, there ought to be a plurality of elders. Uh, Witherow is is building his argument piece by piece. 
Uh, and so this third principle may seem a little too simple to have a point all of its own, but in the long run, it will prove necessary to the overall form of government we have that's given to us in the scriptures. And so guys, we're going to take this whole thing in two big steps. First, we're going to work through the biblical text that Witherow's presented on this particular point, which won't take us very long, as y'all can see. And second, we're going to consider the import of the principle in and of itself and discuss some of the implications of it. So to start with, uh, Witherow begins in Acts chapter 14, um, and uh, Scott was going to see if you could walk us through uh, the point that he makes there related to this third principle. In each church, there ought to be a plurality of elders. Yeah, when you when you hear that statement, you you might be wondering where where he's going to go with it. Uh, but it is pretty simple in its formation. In Acts fourteen twenty three, um, Paul and Barnabas are on missionary journeys and seeking to establish leadership within the church. And it says particularly, uh, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And so we see that during Paul's missionary journey um, and the establishment of churches that they are working with, uh, they are also establishing elders. Um, I think we were talking before this show with an S at the end. Uh, There's this idea that there are are more than one elder. The principle seems to be that even in as early as Acts chapter 14 in the life of the church, that there is more than one leader within the church. And we see that here in Acts 14 um, with the appointment of elders. It seems that Paul and Barnabas are almost acting as evangelists in this passage, and they're going out with the authority of the church, and in that establishing the church, also setting up leadership leaders within the church. And so each church uh, that we see in the book of Acts doesn't have one leader, um, but seems to have multiple elders um, that are appointed um, there within um, that local bodies. Um, And so uh, I think at the end of um, Witherow's statement in this chapter, uh, he says, if then the evangelist Luke is speaking as he is moved by the Spirit, is a true witness. There were more elders than one in each congregation of the apostolic church. How many, whether two, three, or more, were not informed, but that in each church there was a plurality of elders is clear. And so it's that idea that um, in Luke's recording of the early church, it seems presupposed that these churches had more than one who ruled over those congregations. It's entirely possible that Scott just took all of the the substance of this whole point and gave it to us. But Witherow continues on from Acts 14 and moves to one of Jared's favorite chapters in all of Scripture, Acts chapter 20. Uh, it's a great chapter to love. We're not we're not making fun. Jared, help us out. What's going on in Acts 20 that relates to this principle? Well, yeah, he had brought us here last time on uh, the use of the word elder in verse 17 and the use of the word 28 of uh, overseers in verse 28. Um, and how those were equivalent. Uh, But now he's bringing us back here for a different reason. And that is uh, Paul is going from um, his travels back to Jerusalem. And as he's doing that, he's stopping off in in Ephesus and he calls for the elders of the church um, to meet him there. And you might think maybe he left behind, you know, one or two pastors or something like that. But I think what he's making a point is, is that this seems a pretty substantial speech that he's giving. And I don't think you just do that to a couple people or the one person that you left behind. Uh, again, you have the the S that's there in both 17 and 28. 
And uh, another thing I'd, I'd point out is at the end of that, it says he knelt down and he prayed with them all. Um, this seems to mean that there was a substantial uh, number that were there. And so um, there were multiple elders there for him at the church in Ephesus uh, for him to uh, be praying with and to have a meeting with and to give this instruction on being uh, elders and overseers, which means the same thing uh, to them. So um, Acts 20 becomes uh, another one of those times in which we see a church that has, with an S, elders. I love how based Witherow is sometimes, because at the end of that section, he just says, unless language means nothing, there was a plurality of elders and bishops at the church at Ephesus. It's really, really good. Um, he moves away from particular texts and kind of takes a look at Philippi in general, referencing Acts 16 and Philippians chapter 1. Josh, what what what's there for us related to this principle of, of a plurality of elders? Yeah, it's been mentioned a couple times, the the emphasis, uh, he, I'm taking it in reverse order of how he presents it, but that in, in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, there is an S on that word overseers, and he, he, he emphasizes that in light of the, the cultural backdrop of Philippi. You know, Philippi, uh, he, he mentions that uh, at the head of whose roles of members stood the names of Lydia and the jailer. That's the jailer who tries to kill himself in Acts 16. You can imagine how interesting church probably was that first first Sunday where they met together and you have Lydia and the jailer sitting next to each other uh, discussing how they, how they met Paul, probably very unique experiences. Um, but it's interesting because Philippi was a very, uh, a considerable town. He mentions that in population and importance, it was no more to such a city as Dublin or Liverpool. And I know us Americans don't really know what that means, but his, his point is that it's actually a pretty big town and that it stands in contrast that, that Paul writes to a considerable town, having multiple overseers um, where you know, in modern days, what he's writing against is that uh, one single bishop is sufficient for, you know, all of London. So he's he's stressing the fact that Philippi as a, as a considerable town needing multiple overseers is is very unique from the, uh, the ecclesiastical structure that we see where there's a single bishop or a single elder over the church. And he uses this as a little bit of a contextual cultural argument for a plurality of bishops as, as elders. You know, you, you can track it. Listener, if you're paying attention, right? Acts 14, Acts 20, Philippians 1, and we could probably go other places and we might ask that question here in a minute. But Witherow's making this point very, very clear, at least in his own thinking, that that the elders are always accompanied by that that plural S at the end. And so he gets to the end of this whole section of chapter two and says, how is it possible for the candid reader to resist the conclusion that in apostolic days there was in each congregation a plurality of elders, or what have we seen uh, amounts to the same thing, a plurality of bishops. In each church, there ought to be a plurality of elders. And before we talk about, you know, kind of the significance of this principle and the importance of it, I want to ask us, uh, are we convinced? Uh, are, are you, gentlemen, convinced of this point just in and of itself that the apostolic church uh, had a plurality of elders in each congregation. I think it's a a good argument, though for me this is not as much of a clear knockdown drag out point. And I would say that because um, my background and coming from Baptist circles, I've known those that have tried to look at this and say, well, maybe there are multiple pastors in a lot of different congregations that are there. 
Um, though I think if you're looking like at, at Acts 20, there would just be just a ton uh, of churches that would have to be there, right? And then later on, when he's when you have like the the book of Revelation, and it seems to be these letters written to the angel or perhaps the messenger or main pastor of that church, there, there does seem to be one main pastor, but then there's all of these elders that are there. So I think I think it's most likely this situation. Although I do think you can get some arguments uh, that are on the other side. I just don't think the arguments against it are as convincing as as Witherow's argument for it. I'm not sure I'm, yeah, I'm not sure I'm convinced with the argument as presented. Um, you know, one, and I'm, I'm not speaking against the arguments, but one of the, the short-sightedness of it is it all comes from the way that uh, Paul is organizing his churches. And we know this is coming from Holy Scripture. And so, you know, Paul is, is, is acting, you know, um, on behalf of, you know, it's being described particularly because the Holy Spirit wants to inspire these particular actions historically. But it is interesting that this, all we're getting from this is is what Paul has done. And um, the, there are some arguments to be made historically that potentially Peter did not, you know, establish his churches the same way, I'm not talking specifically a Roman bishopcy, but, um, you know, I'm not sure that the the three texts that we read are convincing in of themselves, but I definitely think that they point us that direction and there's wisdom in the conclusion of the plurality of elders that it's a worthwhile thing to consider. I'm surprised he doesn't draw on other texts like first Timothy five, um, where it talks about two types of elder in some regards, those who um, are worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Well, every church needs preachers and teachers uh, but there seems to be other elders that don't labor in that, at least in uh, that full of a capacity. And so there, are, I think there are other texts within the New Testament that also lend to his point, um, because you're not going to have a church that has no preacher, or, uh, at least in theory. Um, somebody has to preach. Um, and so I think there are more texts outside of perhaps the ones that we looked at that also lend to the rule of there being more than one uh, within a congregation that also function perhaps slightly differently within the day-to-day. So, yeah, I think it's a good starting point, but I, I wish that Witherow went further. I mean, we didn't, we maybe had two and a half pages, um, and there could have been, I think, more development than um, what was offered to us. Yeah, I was going to... Um... I was going to ask you guys if there were other scripture passages that back this up and, and you've, you've moved there a little bit. I was surprised he didn't use any Old Testament references. Um, you know, there's elders reference all over the place. I mean, one of the most more significant ones would be Exodus 24 when when a, there's all these elders elected to help govern Israel under the leadership of Moses at the encouragement of his father-in-law. Um, and I was just trying to look it up. One of y'all might know it off the top of your head. It wasn't long ago. We were in BCO 8 and they make the connection between yeah it's bco 8 9 as there were in the church under the law elders of the people for the government thereof so in the gospel church christ has furnished others besides the ministers of the word with gifts and commission to govern when called thereunto and so even our book makes the point like hey yeah plurality of elders is significant and we get that not just from these texts of paul's you know church planning efforts but all over the the scriptures including under the time of the law and under the time of the gospel it, it did concern me that he didn't seem to branch out any further than just these couple of missionary journeys. Um, anything else come to y'all's mind as far as where 
where we might go, I guess, to, to fill in what he's left out. Cause we, we obviously agree with the principle. I think that, that the elders are to be plural. Um, what else comes to mind from the scriptures that, that we should bring in here? James five fourteen for me jumps out. Uh, notice the application of is any among you sick, but the, the references let him call the elders of the church. That's good. I mean, it's a clear articulation of multiple elders in a single church presiding over the care of a sick individual. Um, so yeah, it's a little shocked that that, that didn't make the, didn't make the cut. Well, and you're thinking of the principle, um, even when, when Jesus sends out the disciples, he often sends them out two by two. Um, you think about Paul usually has one person that's with them. And even when they split up, there's two going one way, two going another way. Um, that's not necessarily a uh, knockdown drag out for elders, one church, but it does show you that uh, within church government, it's often good not to be on your own and to have some sort of accountability. We well, can't apply this now. That's not this week, Jared. Slow your, slow your roll. <laughs> yeah. Slow down, man. Um, I was just about to say, you know, we're we're going to, and maybe the better thing to say is we're going to use these principles to evaluate all the different forms of church government, the three main ones at some point down the road when, when Witherow does it in his book. But what, what would be the significance of this principle? Uh, why is it important? And and it certainly is important in the PCA. There's, there's plenty of things in our BCO that, that allude to this, um, that emphasize this. What's the significance of the principle of a plurality of elders in the church? You're not alone in in the work of the church. Um, I couldn't imagine doing the work that I do, even in my hundred member church alone. I couldn't imagine the burden of trying to make some of the weightiest decisions within the life of the church just by myself. Um, sure, the Lord is gracious, but there is a great asset within the structure of the church where men come together and discern the wisdom of scripture together in making decisions and leading the church. Um, I, I can be wrong. I, I can miss the mark and having men come alongside me, at least practically speaking, help um, the church have a much more stable grounding. Um, when you have only one guy, everything rides on him. And we've seen the destruction of that within various types of churches. If there's just one guy and the vacuum blows up, um, there's the whole church can fall apart really quickly. Yeah. And what I hope it is when you have a change in who the main pastor is that comes in, I mean, think about Paul and Ephesus and all the elders that were there and the continuity that there is when somebody else like a Timothy or somebody like that follows him. Um, I, I know it's a, it's a big help when you come into a new church with a, as a teaching elder with a call. Um, most of the elders haven't changed. Um, just the teaching elder did. And so when that happens, there's a lot of continuity to the church and uh, having multiple elders so that not one person leaves and everything changes, uh, I think is a great help to the church. Piggyback a little bit more off of what uh, Scott was saying. I'm always drawn to the, the fundamental understanding that not everybody on a session, using our polity term, uh, is gifted with the same gifts. And so this idea that one man is going to have all the gifts necessary to shepherd a congregation I don't think it fits very well with the understanding of 1 Corinthians 12. I mean, a man has a calling, uh, but a man's also going to be given spiritual gifts in ways to minister to his flock. And so understanding that a plurality of elders, they're going to have different things that they're good at. They're going to have different insights and ways to contribute to the body that the body needs. The body needs a plurality of elders and men who have different focus and emphasis and gifts given to them by the spirit and to shepherd the flock. And, um, 
you know, you, you strip that all down to one man running the church and that's a huge spiritual burden on him to be uh, proficient and gifted in all of those things all the time. All this talk about plurality made me think about um, BCO chapter three, which as you know, along with assistant pastors is something that we seem to reference a whole lot in uh, these episodes of Polity Matters. BCO3 is on the nature and extent of church power, and it makes clear there that ecclesiastical power is essentially twofold. Um, There's the power of order, which is exercised severally, and that would be the things that we're already talking about, the various gifts on a session, some men for preaching, some for teaching, some for, you know, there are men that can go visit people in their homes on their own. They can, they can, um, you know, counsel with people, these things that can be done individually, but the power of jurisdiction necessarily cannot be exercised independently. It has to be exercised jointly. And so necessary to the exercise of church power is a plurality of elders. You, you really can't have uh, church power being exercised without it, which is why when you get to PCO four, it says the power of jurisdiction is lodged in the church session. And that's when you, you know, you have all those numbers that we have to memorize for ordination and that you have to remember when you're sitting down for a meeting of, okay, how many people are on our session and what constitutes a quorum and can we actually do something? But in those paragraphs, it establishes that one elder on his own does not constitute a session uh, for all these reasons, right? Because if he were to exercise any kind of a joint authority in that matter, he'd be acting like a bishop, Um, not a bishop in the sense that we use it or that Witherow uses it, but a bishop bishop. But like Scott said, we're not allowed to apply things. We can't talk about the episcopacy yet. Um, <laughs> can we can we talk about that the 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 position of evangelist in our BCO then? <laughs> yeah, I, I'd be happy. We I think that's a great place to talk about it. Yeah, we've spent some time discussing it with Fred. Um, but where does that come into play for you here, Josh? How do you see that? Oh, I, w- I was just I was just thinking. I think that uh, there in our BCO it was written for a particular purpose and. I'm not necessarily sure in uh, application in the PCA that we are always consistent in making sure that it is a rare thing that a man is evangelist. I think uh, you, you, we've had some cases where uh, men acting as an evangelist have been the cause of, of um, charges in, in presbyteries and against them because of how he's acted. And I've always wondered if, if we shouldn't be a little bit more strict in our BCO on uh on that, make it more explicit when it can't be used. For anybody that may be listening for the first time, because the name of Tori drew you to this episode, um, evangelists in the PCA, they're, they're sort of, as Fred says, at a JV and a, and a varsity player, right? So the JV guys can do some things on their own that a session might do on its own normally, uh, because they're working in an area where they're far from a, a local church, but you can bump them up to varsity and actually give them in one particular instance, the power of a presbytery even um, to form the church if, if a presbytery decides to, to grant that power to the man. Um, so a little bit of context there. Jared or Scott or anybody else, any thoughts there on the evangelist issue? Well, I think that I, if I recall our conversation with Fred is that there are very few occasions where we should actually, as a church, um, implement those varsity um, uh, privileges, uh, as I'll call them. Uh, I think Fred said maybe, and we maybe he was just being kind to our brother in Utah, uh, that maybe Utah would be the only state that would really necessarily need to have evangelistic powers, um, grant full evangelistic powers. I think Fred was probably just being kind in that episode to our dear friend uh, in St. George. 
Um, he probably would go further and say it's it's mostly unnecessary. It is fully unnecessary in the U.S. and is meant to be used for broader church use and establishing presbyteries in places where we have no local contact. You got to also remember that part of this, the BCO is written not in, in the wireless internet age and connectionalism was not as connected in some regards um, 50 years ago, um, where if a guy went to Central America, you don't know when the next time you'll hear from him. Um, that's not so much the case anymore. And so I think some of that also changes with that. Uh, there's a little more accessibility with accessing and talking with people. Um, and so there's a little more accountability and perhaps those powers are less necessary. I mean, in our BCO, we're now adopting things with video conferencing and work being able to be done via video conference. Well, then why would a man need evangelistic powers if things can be done by video conference? If you can have a, I mean, you can have a temporary session that never meets in person that just meets once a quarter um, via Zoom. And so I think it's becoming less needed um, with the advancement of technology, perhaps than previously. Yeah, I think in the BCO, you also see some of this knowledge that this is not a permanent situation. You know, this is a renewable 12 months. Um, it seems to be a preference for having some sort of temporary session that comes in with, say, a church planter. Um, though you, more often you might see this on with a chaplain that is going off on some of the powers that he's given if he's on a, a naval ship for six months at a time or something like that. But um I was thinking, actually, this principle was great for us to have a, a ruling elder with us because the ruling elders help keep us in check in that way. And so it's always a good <laughs> reminder that we, we need our ruling elders. Well, unless anybody stops me, I think we're done. All right. As Paul and Barnabas would say, this podcast is over. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to come back next time when we discuss the fourth apostolic principle of church government. Ordination is the act of the presbytery of a plurality of elders. If you're interested in learning more about anything we mentioned, be sure to check out the show notes in your podcast player or at polity If you enjoyed the show, consider following us on social media at polity matters and be sure to subscribe in your podcast app of choice. If you have any questions or comments that you'd like to send us, you can contact us at polity matters, feedback at gmail.com. A huge thanks to Joshua Torrey for joining us today. You can find him on Twitter at Joshua Torrey, one of those rare guys that has his name just spelled out for his Twitter handle. What a blessing. Scott is the Minister of Providence PCA in Troy, Illinois. You can find him on Twitter at S. Edberg. If you're looking for Jared, he's still over there at New Life Presbyterian Church in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, and he's on Twitter at his unusually Baptist handle at Brother Nelson. I serve as the Associate Pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Cleveland, Mississippi, and I'm on Twitter at underscore Ben Ratliff. Thanks again for spending your valuable time with us. Until next time, gentlemen, say goodbye. Goodbye, gentlemen. Hasta la vista, baby. Thanks, guys. Y'all take care. Jared, I think I messed you up. I didn't say my normal phrase so that you actually did not copy me, did you? You just no, said your normal thing. I, it'll it'll I work out. said my normal thing. Yeah, it'll yeah. work out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I don't have a normal thing. My normal thing's an odd thing. You you said Arrivederci or something in an episode I edited recently. I don't know what you were on that day. Oh, uh, that, that was that was that uh, was that was Italian. I was uh, Fred was on. <laughs> so I was trying my hand at Italian. Goodness. There you go. Okay. I was trying to look for something in Texas. I was trying to make. I was trying to look up something from Texas and I couldn't. So I decided to go Terminator. <laughs>